The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network, GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. You know, the most adventurous thing we do in the Paracast is to find ways to communicate with Microsoft Skype. Now, you think Skype, you know, it's been around for 20 years or so. It should be easy. But trying to talk to Mark Ollie today has proven to be a little troublesome. So he ended up calling us. Now, I don't want to say what he called us because this is terrestrial radio and we're not allowed to say those words, right, Mark? Uh, Correct. (laughs) But seriously speaking, he called me, I called Tim, and I don't know what Tim called me back, but then that's it, seriously. No, we're going to have a really fascinating discussion about a book that Mark has written called The Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur. And anything related to Merlin and King Arthur and all that stuff, everybody likes to hear about that. So we're going to kind of look at the facts and the fiction. First, I want to talk about, speaking of fiction, last week's episode. And some people say, you know what? In the days of the Paracast, the early days, you'd rag on people more than you do now. <laughs> and I think the reason is we ran out of people to rag on. But we found a few more. Anyway, we were talking last week about a book from Ken Goodsword, who, by the way, was quite a good guest, called UFOs in the Bible. And I thought to myself, that's a pretty familiar title. Let me look it up. So the infamous M.K. Jessup, back in the 50s, wrote a book called UFO and the Bible, similar ground. Then there's a rather famous book called The Bible and Flying Saucers Did a UFO Part the Red Sea written by Reverend Barry Downing. That goes back quite a few years. And, of course, we have all the ancient astronaut books from Eric Von Daniken, from people like Brinsley, Lepore, Trench, and lots of others. Okay, good to talk about that. Then we also had another guest who co-wrote a book with Ron called Before Roswell. And she is an interesting character. Tim, you were on Barbara DeLong's radio show a time or two, right? Oh, yes, yeah. It's been a few years ago, but uh, but yeah. Well, she was boasting about her superior ability to know when something was true or not. I guess I didn't say it then. I guess she thought of herself as a human lie detector. And then she ends up having this complete faith in the fake claims of such contactees as Billy Meyer and George Adamski. So I guess her lie detector failed. 
when those two stories arose. I don't know. Yeah, well, Billy Myers especially. I mean, it's, it, it was proven a long time ago that his, his photographs were fakes. And obviously, you know, forced perspective of, of small models. But, you know, you'll find a lot of people, for whatever reason, still have a lot of faith in Billy Myers. I don't know why, you know. But then again, there are a lot of people out there in the public world that people have faith in that I'm wondering why they do, and I won't, I won't say names. Well, with George Adamski, what surprises me is all the stuff that was resolved in the 50s comes back. Like a few weeks ago, somebody was mentioning the photos that George Adamski allegedly took of a flying saucer that they couldn't be duplicated. This is after they were duplicated 55 years ago, rather credibly, in different ways, one using a Chrysler hubcap, the other using a surgical lamp. It was back to the 1950s. But people still have access to the Adamski books, and the exposés have died by the wayside. That's so unfortunate. Well, I think that, you know, you have a lot of people that, uh, when it comes to uh, the UFO phenomena, uh, there are a lot of stories, especially Adamski and, and Billy Myers and others. The, those are kind of the uh, low-hanging fruit, so to speak. The first and the easiest for people to pick. I mean, I know for me, you know, I ran across as a kid uh, George Adamski's uh, second book, and, and, you know, before I knew any better, you know, I was impressed by it. But, you know, if a person doesn't really do their research or their vetting of the subject and the people involved over the years, then, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're going to keep that belief of, of some of these type of people. And, and you know, of course, uh, I think that anybody who has been involved in the UFO field has a tendency to be suspect. I mean, there are people who who still think that uh, Bob Lazar, you know, really did what they did, and 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 others. I don't know. It's uh, I suppose it's like religion. It's a matter of faith. Well, for example, I like Stanton Friedman. I knew him for like forty years or so. Met him at conventions, interviewed him on the Paracast until the end of his days. He believed or claimed to believe that the MJ-12 documents were really truthful. They were accurate. They were authentic. And that was pretty well known years ago that they were fakes in many ways. Yeah, I wonder sometimes if he didn't uh, um, just uh, you know put all of his eggs in that basket and then later when more information about its you know non-validity of the MJ-12 papers that he just didn't want to lose face, so to speak, and just you know stuck to his guns with it? Well, I think sometimes you could sell that by saying, you know, things are going to change in this field and things that we may have accepted as reality, maybe later on with more research we learn they're not real. And we have to be honest with ourselves and say to understand what's happening in the flying saucer business, we have to do this. We have to revisit old cases. We have to hopefully solve them. And that gives us a mystery with more solid evidence. I don't know. Mark, have you followed much of this UFO lore that we're talking about? 
Well, I was kind of hanging back a little bit. Um, the next book, which I'm doing for uh, Flying Disc Press, uh, is on flying saucers, as the name might suggest. Uh, but going back to 2008, I did a documentary on a crashed UFO in uh, this country, in Wales. And the documentary went out as Europe's Roswell. Um, and as a professional archaeologist, the thing that got my attention was the fact that they had pieces of it. So I've got a bit of it still here um and the main guy who did the recovery has a case full of these bits uh which of course you know the old story goes the mod tried to get them back etc etc um and it was interesting listening to you guys sort of kicking the can about there because um we put the documentary out and we thought hey you know whoa we've got it here we are here is pieces of a ufo we can actually prove now that there's something up there flying around it was met with complete silence hmm. you know nobody picked up on it Nobody came forward and went, oh, can we test that? Can we have a look at that? Can we do this, that, and the other? Nobody. It was total and utter blanket blackout, uh, which kind of goes to show, you know, the chase is better than the catch. They prefer the mystery. Uh, you know, the fiction and all that side of it is better than the reality. Uh, so I was just listening to you guys then. I mean, I, I was highly inspired by, you know, flying saucers have landed when I was, a, you know, an extremely young teenager. My dad had it on his... Um, on his bookshelf and i thought oh yeah this is interesting i've had a few encounters with flying objects uh, and when we came to do the the actual documentary the 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 way we approached it was they are unidentified flying objects you know they're not necessarily alien they're not necessarily full of little green men they're just they're things batting around up there that we don't know you know we just don't know what these things are so listening to you guys then it's, it's interesting because uh, my next release which is due out in uh, in august is the uh, the book version of that dvd uh, and it takes a very sort of flat pragmatic uh, view of it i mean it amazes me all these people have got all these books on the you know on the shelf about you know little green men and little flashes in the sky and things that they saw but they couldn't substantiate and all this that and the other we got more with mark and gene and tim <laughs> and a lot of laughter you're in <laughs> the pericast hey listeners I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you have an IRA or 401k, please listen closely. My name is Jason Hansen. I'm a former CIA officer and New York Times bestselling author. Throughout my career, let's just say I've been in some hairy situations. And I believe right now the biggest threat facing Americans is they need to protect their wealth, which is exactly what I'm doing for my wife and six kids. And I believe the ultimate safe haven is physical gold and silver. You can protect your hard-earned retirement assets with a tax-free loophole that allows you to convert your retirement into physical gold and silver. The folks 
I use are Advantage Gold, and believe me, I've investigated the heck out of all types of people. Advantage Gold is the nation's highest rated gold company. They have the best process, pricing, and service. If you want to get your free gold and silver investment kit, please contact Advantage Gold right now, and you'll see how easy it is to protect yourself with precious metals. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. Hi, this is Sophie Winnick, longtime distributor and user of Longevity products. In the last few years, my family went through a crisis. Everything else in my life, including my business, had to be put on the back burner. Thankfully, life is getting back to normal now. But the one thing I never had to worry about was my business and my monthly commission. I've been a distributor for Longevity for over 17 years, since before it was Longevity. And I've got to say, the most amazing thing about this company is the people. While my family was in crisis, other distributors stepped in and helped my customers simply because that's what longevity people do, even for people they don't know. For me, it has never been about getting rich. It was about a product I could stand behind, a company I could count on, and a monthly commission check that has never not once been late in 17 years. Longevity is truly a business for everyone, even people who have too much to do. I'm Sophie Winnick. I'm just like you. I have a real life, real ups and downs, but I know I will always have longevity. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Mark Ollie, the inimitable Mark Ollie, and we were. Thank you. Ta- I'm very welcome, but we uh, were basically talking about known hoaxes in the UFO field, and Mark is talking about what may be the Roswell of Wales and a book version of a documentary that he did. But let me cut to the chase here. Yeah, please do. (laughs) The materials that you were handling, what were they made of? Um, The metal content uh, obviously would have cost thousands of pounds to get every single, like, bit of it analyzed when it came down in um, in 1983 uh, so the guys way way back then managed to get as far as finding out what the metal was and the metal turned out to be um, an alloy of duralumin which in 1983 didn't exist and this particular version of it shouldn't have existed they knew in theory how to make it um, it's 
in existence now, but then the other substances that were attached to this, the paint, the glue they'd used to sandwich some other foil onto it and various other bits and bobs in these pieces. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but they, they couldn't analyse that. They couldn't find out. They, they could see elements, but they didn't know uh, what it was. It was certainly advanced technology. Whether it was alien technology, well, the jury's still out. <laughs> there was a case in Brazil investigated by APRO back in the 50s, where they recovered something with magnesium, which is nothing special, except that the purity level was allegedly more than we could deliver at the time. Of course, top secret experimental stuff, you never know. Mark's uh, a book that will be coming out uh, about this case it sounds extremely fascinating, and I can't wait to read it. Well, uh, I've got to chip in and say the whole idea of the book when it comes out, it's not very big on words, uh, but it's big on photographs. You know, people want to see this stuff. So, you know, when it, when it does eventually appear, which, you know, we can do another show on that perhaps when it comes out, you'll be able to see it. You know, it's a show, don't tell. At the end of the day, you know, this is this is the evidence for something batting about up there. It's a fascinating story. It's funny because it's kind of a story that begins at the end. You know, we, we start off with all these bits and then we have to go and find out what they are and where they came from so it's it's like a reverse uh, you know reverse um, flying saucer encounter you know fascinating story anyway it reminds me almost of this book we were talking about last week before roswell it calls it the secret history of ufos and then gives us lists of sightings many of us have heard about so i guess we were all in on the secret but unusual for a book instead of Starting at the beginning and going to the end, it starts with the most recent cases and then goes to the older cases, chapter by chapter. I thought that was at least different. Yeah, this new book I've done is very similar. Start, starts with the evidence and then goes back to where it came from. And then we try and push it back further than that if we can, um, with some success. I hope folks enjoy it when it comes out. I hope it doesn't get completely ignored like the, uh, the DVD and the television release was. <laughs> We will try our best to ignore it, Mark, but I think we're going to end up doing a show on it. How's that work for you? Well, yeah, if my publisher has anything to do with it, I think uh, I think it's more than likely. So, yeah, just, just give us a shout when you're ready. and uh, You know I'm here. Sure. Well, of course, Philip Mantle is always very <laughs> eager to tell us what new books he has out because he has so many different titles. I'm surprised at some of the books he gets from Kevin Randall. He's done a couple for him. He came out with the book by Calvin Parker, mm. and, you know, one of the people involved in the Pascagoula, Mississippi episode. How he got that book, I don't know. He did tell us, but I can't think offhand, but it was a miracle. Speaking of miracles, the Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur. Now, of the names of books, this is kind of unique. I mean, last week we had an author who wrote a book with a title we could not say in complete <laughs> words on terrestrial radio. And you can guess what that term was, because a lot of it yeah. is found in the UFO field, but unfortunately too much, but we try to get past it. But Polychronicon, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lovely way of joining from where we were in the conversation to where we were going. What I was actually going to say was, um, Philip, bless him, I mean, he does UFOs, that's his thing, you know, so for him to publish something on King Arthur, uh, you might think it's totally unrelated and a bit of a sidestep, but then I, it kind of dawned on me, you know, if you're willing to put the UFO data out there and you're willing to tell the stories that people have to say about UFOs, that's probably considerably weirder less accessible strange you know unusual than king arthur arthur's been around you know so long it's probably quite tame so maybe it's not so unusual that he decided to publish this uh the, the name basically is, is really simple polychronicon just means a chronological history it's a medieval term uh, that was used when they were trying to gather arthur material together uh, in the, the 13th and 14th century, they created this thing, this Polychronicon back then. Plus the fact if you've got 300 books on Arthur coming out worldwide every year, you've got to come up with a name that, that grabs it, but nobody else is using. <laughs> I think I saw Tim's light go on then. <laughs> you know, I want to ask you here, why are we so fascinated with some guy from the Middle Ages? To be blunt about it. Right. Okay. Um, there's several reasons for that. Um, the the reason that it, it happened in the first place is that he was the last, you know, uh, of that golden age, that old order. Uh, when you say Middle Ages, yeah, you watch, what you actually mean is what we used to know as the Dark Ages. It's actually early medieval uh, is the modern term for it. So you're looking at the Romans are coming to an end, you know, Druids are coming to an end, you know, the old world's coming to an end. You know, it's it's all it's all about to end, and the very last person really in the uk that embodies that is arthur so people tend to look back on that as a golden age and then that's been going on for a long time you know that was 1500 plus years ago and each time he gets sort of dredged up again he gets reinvented for a new uh, a new time period a new age and there's an awful lot of stuff in there you know um in, in producing this book some of it it just it's incredibly modern the kind of the background, the gritty reality hasn't really changed um, over the years. Well, Hello, do you want me to say a bit more? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can go on as long as you need. We'll interrupt you when it's time to do our habitual breaking thing here. But let me just ask you briefly, we'll have to break very quickly. Okay. What are the things that people will be surprised about the real guy rather than the guy that we see in the movies and TV. Oh, I can read this straight off the back of the book because this this will help you, okay? Merlin becomes one of an ancient line of Pythagorean scholars and, a polit and political visionaries. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who, as you know, brought the grail, is a religious dissident fleeing persecution of death and death to far-off foreign shores. And Arthur is a hardened, womanising battle leader who loses his entire family and culture to war and eventually natural disaster. Well, you don't get much more modern and up-to-date than that, really. <laughs> Well, of course, we have Camelot, the musical. You think about that. <laughs> um, uh, well, if, if you start asking me questions about specifics, which I'm hoping you are going to, um, you'll understand why that is um, Hollywood nonsense or fabricated nonsense. I don't know how you would call it. Hollywood is sometimes very good at fabricated nonsense, even yeah. when they present something. As factual. Mark, Gene, and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. 
Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. This is a USA News update. Former Vice President Mike Pence is troubled by the potential indictment of Donald Trump. On Saturday, Pence told reporters an indictment would be concerning, though he's confident Trump can take care of himself. Earlier, Trump used social media to claim he'll soon be arrested due to a probe into alleged hush money payments and told his supporters to protest. Paris police are clashing with protesters for the third night in a row after French President Macron raised the retirement age. Thousands of people are marching and chanting for his resignation after he pushed through the new law without a parliamentary vote. At least 13 people are dead after a 6.5 magnitude earthquake hit off the coast of Ecuador. It was felt in 13 provinces across the country and collapsed buildings. USA News, I'm Karen Sloan. Do you ever get the feeling that the world is being held together with duct tape? Every day we're thrown some new meaningless drama in the fake news to distract us from the reality we're all about to face. Between the government trying to print their way out of debt, military conflicts, the disintegration of our most trusted institutions, and a looming food shortage, preparedness is no longer a choice. It's a necessity. You can trust my Patriot Supply. Our emergency food kits come packed with tasty meals, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one kit for each person in your family. Self-reliance is the only alternative to government food lines. Time is running out. Become ungovernable. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and save on dozens of different emergency food kits while you can. These kits are in stock, ship fast, and arrive in unmarked boxes for your privacy. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com before the next crisis strikes. MyPatriotSupply.com These are the sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do yourself a favor. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, 
Stay off the phone. A message from CTIA. This is me, the Merciless. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan. Now, we know that the people in King Arthur's time didn't stop and sing every time they talked. They didn't give us songs. I mean, I like the musical in terms of the music from it and everything, but now we look at the facts here. What happened in the musical Camelot that did not happen in the real world? Well, I could start at the beginning. Camelot does actually exist, uh, but there's been lots of suggested places for Camelot. Uh, But when you actually do the archaeological and historical research, you discover that at that particular point, there's only one candidate in the UK for Camelot, and that is a a city, a Roman city called Chester. Um, When you look at Chester, it's got the biggest dark age palace because it's a converted bathhouse it's got the biggest roman amphitheater in britain it's 11 acres bigger than any other roman fort ever built and it's got this strange elliptical building which would have been known as tablierum rotundus which is in fact the round the round floor or the round table so there in, in just in camelot alone is the reality that is behind uh, the fiction and clearly doesn't exactly match the fiction uh, so that raises a lot of questions and of course in the musical Excalibur is in fact a Welsh sword called Caldebolg made of bronze and it's a flashing sword that was pulled from a stone mould not from a stone in a churchyard that's uh, romanticism uh, Arthur couldn't have actually used it ceremonially couldn't have used it to fight because he was up against iron swords at this point which would have just cut through it so he's known to have had at least two other swords one of which ended up in the church of the holy sepulchre during the Crusades. So if these little monks out there have got this rusting iron bar in a cupboard somewhere and they've no idea what it is, chances are it was this sword that was sent in by Richard the Lionheart in medieval times. Guinevere is a Pictish queen. You know, she was married for military gain because he needed the, uh, the, the the sort of the extra warriors. Sir Gawain, who's his older cousin, becomes his main warrior leader, his main battle leader for uh, campaigns. In actual fact, uh, Lancelot doesn't really exist. Uh, he's a composite medieval character uh, there is a guy with an unpronounceable welsh name that they think he, he originates from but he, he doesn't really exist in that sense uh, and arthur as i said is he's a hardened battle leader you know he's a typical dark age chieftain um he was never a king he was acting under probably melgwyn of gwynedd who was the regional king at the time uh, he was just a really really heroic warrior and when the vikings the danes and later the normans got hold of him they kind of glorified him uh, almost out of all uh, all proportion. Uh, and Merlin, well, you know, Merlin would have appeared magical because of his knowledge and his experience and his wisdom and his abilities. And he wasn't the only one. Uh, out of a list of druids, all with the title Merlin, uh, he's, I think he's about the third one. He's the third one in the list, and there's actually about six or seven of them over a a 200-year period. But again, they were wiped out by the Saxons, so he's the last proper real druid. Arthur dies, and then Krakatoa erupts, which is this volcano, and the fallout from that drops all over the place in 542 AD, and they have three years of nuclear winter, and everything kind of comes to an end for a while. Uh, Hence, they forgot where he was buried, so you've got this legend that he's he's coming back. And if you go all the way back to Joseph of Arimathea, which, of course, is in the time of 
Christ, so you're 500 years before Arthur. There's a lot of debate over exactly what the Holy Grail is, where it comes from, uh, and you've got a real choice there because it can either originate with um, the Last Supper or it can originate with the Crucifixion. So I do deal with that in quite quite a lot of detail in the book. You don't ask Harrison Ford where the Grail is. <laughs> By the way, some interesting facts here about Camelot. In 1960, it was a Broadway play where King Arthur was played by Richard Burton, Guinevere, Julie Andrews, Sir Lancelot, Robert Goulet. But in the movie version 1967, King Arthur was played by Richard Harris. And even stranger, that same year, Richard Harris had a hit record, MacArthur Park. Wow. Talk about trivia. Go on, please. I'm sorry I interrupted you. That well, just came to the floor. I was just going to say, by, by sheer coincidence, I'm also in a band. I'm in a band called Copperworm, and we've got our first album coming out soon. So I, too, am a musical archaeologist who has an interest in King Arthur. Um, <laughs> but it seems to follow Arthur around that. You know, uh, I think bards traditionally have uh, have always uh, sung his, his praises down the years. That's probably how we've got the, the bit of material surviving that we have. Bards, troubadours, storytellers, etc. Um, so it's not actually, I suppose, there is a little bit of credibility in uh, in uh, producing a musical. It's following a long tradition of uh, methods of communication of the legends of Arthur, uh, which is worth me chucking in, by the way, that in, at the beginning, if you were telling stories about Arthur, you had to make them credible. So even though they've altered a lot of the details and they messed with it and exaggerated it and changed the geography and what have you, the basic core stories of the very, very early tales are consistent. They have to remain the same, otherwise nobody would accept them, uh, nobody would believe them. But once you get past sort of the invention of printing, you know, you get, get into that stage in the 14, 1500s, everything goes bonkers. You know, it, it becomes fantasy and free-for-all, so... You've just got to be very careful. The book itself only uses the oldest surviving source for every subject and um, everything that's published. You go right back to the beginning. So some of it goes back before uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. Uh, it goes back a long way. So if you really do want the gritty, you know, this is what we have left in terms of the truth, uh, dash out and buy the book. There you go. Well, your description almost sounds like an adventure movie. You know, you have the warrior, the warrior hero king. You know, uh, the uh, uh, the magician, the love interest, uh, the uh, protagonist, antagonist, and then a volcano blows. Yeah, and, I mean, mess, I, and messes it all up. <laughs> what, what what can I say? I mean, to be honest with you, I've found this a lot. I mean, I, I did a book on Robin Hood, and I've done a lot of other the biblical stuff and all kinds of stuff. I've looked at loads of subjects. I can categorically say that, that, as a rule, the reality is better than the fiction, you know, by a hundred million miles. Um, you know, when you get into, like, you know, Mordred, Arthur's son, you know, ends up being, you know, the, the jilted son of, of Arthur's first lover, because Arthur, in, in the original tradition, had three wives. Well, he puts the first wife away, and he puts Mordred away. So when you start getting into the twists and turns, you're into Game of Thrones territory here, you know what I mean? You, you, you're into serious, you know, in, uh, fighting, you know, amongst relatives and cousins and brothers and sons and fathers and, oh, honestly... Uh, and I, I managed to disentangle that gladly in the book. I mean, don't be put off. It's not it's not complex. Um, but the reality, oh, the reality is so much better, so much better. I keep waiting for an opportunity for you guys to jump in here. <laughs> well, as far as the reality, I like to go into all these things here. Of course, we talk about Merlin as a magician. 
And depending on the particular interpretation, he can do all sorts of strange things. Like, for example, in the TV show Stargate SG-1, he's an ascended super being. Okay? What? That's what he is. What was he in reality? Um, he's... Uh... Well, the first section of the book deals with Merlin. So what I'm dealing with is I'm going all the way back to the Bronze Age and I'm dealing with a European Druidic tradition, which is basically what it is. I've got to say very, very little survives of that. But what does, um, the Romans say that the Druids followed Pythagoras, so they follow the Greeks. And there's a huge amount of evidence of links uh, between Druidism and the Greeks but the Romans also say if you want to be the best you know the best Druid in the world the best Druid on planet Earth you need to go to Britain you need to come here to learn the art of Druidry so obviously you would expect it to be you know a, a world class uh, centre for Druidism uh, those Druids tended to gravitate to the centre of the landmass, so that puts them actually pretty much on top of Chester, where Chester is, because the Romans did the same thing. When they came over here, boom, they stuck the city right in the middle. So that's roughly the area where the Druids would have been. And lo and behold, that's the area where Arthur is. He's up here in the same territory. It used to be known as the Old North. Um, and that's where Merlin is. So you're thinking, hang on a minute, this is brilliant. We, you know, this guy's sitting on the shoulders of giants. His religion at this point is possibly over 3,000 years old. You know, and he's got all that philosophy and all that stuff behind him. He, you know, astrology, herbalism, everything. He's an amazing guy. Of course he's going to look magical. You know, he, he can tell you when the next eclipse is. Vis-a-vis, he can switch the sun off if he wants to or the moon you know i mean this, this is an amazing guy he's a healer he, you know he knows so much uh, he's also the third one to hold the title merlin before we go yeah. on we'll learn about merlin and mm. more about king arthur and all those things with mark and gene and tim you're in the podcast for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right, we cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. 
Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. My name is Don Wiskin, and at 42 years old, I suffered a massive heart attack, lost 35% of my heart to damaged tissue, and was supposed to spend the rest of my life on disability. What did I do? I took Extendivite, a garlic and cayenne mix of seven herbs which rebuilt my heart and gave me back my life. For over 17 years now, I have made this formula available to you, so you don't have to suffer the same thing I did. Clean your blocked arteries and strengthen your heart and boost your natural immune system. I'm 60 years old now and I still work every day. To get your Extendivite, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. Extendivite is only $69.95 for a two-month supply of either capsules or liquid. Extend your life with Extendivite. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork. You know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Now, let's just stop there, Mark Ollie. There were three okay. Marlins... Is, is this kind of like the, it's kind of like the super character, the phantom, where it goes from father to son. The father dies and the son becomes the phantom. It's, it's a bit like that, but it's a bit stranger. I mean, as you would expect, you know, nothing's ever straightforward in Dark Age Britain. The first one is, is, is um, Merlin Taliesin. Well, Taliesin's a poet, basically, and he's around in the early 400s, so he's before Merlin's born. Uh, the second one to have Merlin's Merlin Ambrosius. Now, Ambrosius is um, extremely clever, very clever uh, regional ruler, and he's a military leader. He's actually the uh, elder brother of Uther Pendragon, who is Arthur's father. 
So he has the title Merlin, Merlin Ambrosius. Next one in line is the guy that we're actually talking about. That's uh, a guy called Merlin Lelogan, which is, Lelogan means dear friend or little friend. And he's there right up to halfway through Arthur's uh, time in office. And he's the guy that really pushes up Arthur. You know, uh, there's a possibility he lived to a, probably an age of about 102, 103. Um, and he dies around about the time of the Battle of Baden in the middle of the Arthur story. The next guy to come on the scene is uh, Merlin Willett, Merlin the Mad. Now, he sees the decline of Arthur, and he sees Arthur's defeat at Camlan by the hand of Mordred. So he's really not a happy chappy, and he finishes up going mad in the woods of... Um, Caledonia, which is um, southern Scotland, uh, Cumbria, up that way. And then the very last one, Merlin Tertugan, nobody really knows much about him. He he was a, a poet bard, but very little of him actually survives. We don't have anything really on record. Uh, and he survives right to the end of, of the 600s, but he gets wiped out by the Saxons and the office ends with him. It's finito. There, there aren't any more after that. So I've got at least six of them. There were probably more, but that's the that's the order of Merlins that ran in the territory of Arthur. Because um, I have tried to limit the book, you know. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be, you know, it'd be huge. It'd be like War and Peace or the Bible or, you know, whatever. It'd be enormous. Uh, so I focus very much on that. But those are the ones I've got, and there, there's no relationship. There's no relationship biologically or in function or form uh, in terms of their talents they just seem to be spiritual uh druidic and prominent you know that seems to be the uh, the prerequisite for the title uh, for the title merlin so it is it is a title i'm not the first person to say it's a title um somebody way way back i think in the 1500s worked it out that there was at least three or four of them and there's a lot of people that, that know that i think i'm the first person to actually string them all together chronologically hence polychronicon um, you know and it makes sense when you find out where these people are born and what kind of time period they live through uh, you start to get a window into their personality and how they they think and how they feel so uh, you're right actually this book does read very much like a film script you know get somebody like Bruckheimer to get hold of this it could be a it could be a classic Bruckheimer's getting kind of old there you better hurry yeah yeah what was what's the other one uh, Ridley Scott Ridley Scott would probably nail this actually thinking about oh, yeah. Ridley yeah absolutely I mean he'd be the man to do this I don't know why he's never done an Arthur yeah I don't, I don't think Arthur either of neither of them have of um, Scott or, or Brookheimer, neither of them have ever decided to tackle Arthur. So, uh, you know, if, if they're listening to this and they want to give me a call, you know, you can uh, you can hand uh, my details over to them when they do. <laughs> I will do that for my usual price. Uh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> but you're looking at it here, Merlin, therefore, is not a name so much as a title. I am a Merlin on the basis Correct. of what you're telling me here. You become a special person who does this, that, and the other thing. Any of these Merlins, other than probably being smart people, at least some of them, know anything that we'd call paranormal? Um, I would say that they are all aware of that, but to get inside the head of what they may or may not have known, uh, you would have to study um, Celtic mythology because their worldview uh, would be a combination of uh, Greek mythology and that's then developed into Roman mythology. And because they're unique 
to the British Isles, you would then have to put in Celtic mythology. Uh, so the whole idea of there being a you know a Celtic other world uh, coming from somewhere, living here, going to an afterlife, uh, they would have had some belief in some form of afterlife. Um, spirits, ghosts, you know, the spirit of place, the spirit of, of um, the pools and the trees and, and the world that they lived in, uh, they would have had a, a keen appreciation of that. But also, from a scientific and a philosophical point of view, they would know how those things functioned um, in perhaps in ways that we've lost. You know, there is a genuine mystery there um, where so much of what the Druids were was destroyed by people like the Romans and subsequent invaders. Um, you know, there's a real mystery there. Yeah, definitely. But you've got to have a Celtic perspective, really, to see where they're coming from. So I think most people are familiar with the legend of Arthur based on probably uh, uh, Victorian era tales. Those yes. seem to be those, those seem to be the ones that have the influence on on, on uh, you know, uh, the modern audience. But what what's the 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 oldest written record or poem? That has been discovered about author. You know, the, the, they go you know the furthest back, and 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 you know, like when was it written? I think I'm correct in saying because I'm doing this from memory that um, it's a poem, and it's um, originated by language. We think in southern Scotland. I think it gets quoted um, in the Black Book of Carmarthen, which is a Welsh um, a Welsh book. Uh, which, uh, for just from the writing style of the poem, you, you know that it's been written down in, say, the ninth or tenth century. So you can you can see it's it's really old. It's miles and miles before uh, the Normans start writing stuff down in the eleventh and twelfth. Uh, you know, it's really early in the way it's been written down. But and this is the kicker: when you start to look at the language, you actually you know try and decide what it is they're writing down this socking great big long poem is uh, all about a warrior and it appears to go back to perhaps just after 600 AD mm. so now you're getting really close you within you know uh, 60 70 80 years maybe a lifetime or two lifetimes of the death of Arthur now this poem is long I mean it's a socking great big long thing and it only mentions Arthur once but boy, does it mention him, because it's it's verses and verses and verses about them singing the you know the praises of this amazing warrior, this superb warrior that did this, that, and the other. And you get right to the very end of the poem, and the poem signs off by them you know by them singing the praises, and then it, this bottom line just says, "But he was no Arthur." Hmm. That's the punchline. So this guy's fabulous. This is a great warrior hero poem and all the rest of it you know in the style of Beowulf you get to the end of it the last line just says but he was no Arthur now what that very clearly says is that certainly within 100 years of Arthur dying his reputation had started to break out of the confines of Wales and it's not unusual that the first place that reputation would go is Scotland southern Scotland because basically that's the same race of Celtic Britons there's a connection there uh, with the Picts and the Scots and that's where Guinevere's family came from and this that, and the other so it's not unusual that it's that style of poem and it's equally not unusual that it should then go all the way back to wales and be actually written down by the welsh bards because that's where the interest in arthur was um and then after that it, it just it starts to tumble after that uh, there are more and more references 
uh, till eventually you get the the famous battle list, which I think um, that probably got written down in the uh, uh, 10th century, probably. I think that's the uh, the source for that one. Um, I can't remember all the books that they're in. I, I mean, honestly, my memory's good, but it's not that good. Most of the books are Welsh as well. You've got things like the Red Book of Hergis, the Black Book of Carmarthen. Um, there's one in particular, though, which gives the first ever reference to Merlin, and it's the same one with the battle listing. So if you give me a second, I'm just trying to find it in my own book here. <laughs> Do you know what? I did such a good job of this uh, of this uh, appendix at the end of this that it's almost impossible for me to find anything. <laughs> so much in it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of I'm looking at the pretty pictures here, hoping I stumble on it. I did I did find it. Um, basically, what we've got is is the stuff that survived doesn't survive contemporary with the life of Arthur, but um, there's a lot of stuff that's that's you know pretty jolly close. Here we go: the Annals of Wales, Annales Cambriae. Um, it's compiled from the eighth century onwards. Probably written at St David's in Wales about sort of 954 to 955 AD, with years subsequently added. Um, and that mentions um, in 516 AD the Battle of Baden. That's in there. And I do believe it's got the first reference in there to Merlin as well. So if you really want to get stuck in, you want to see this starting to develop in a written form, then that's where things really start. So as the book quite ably proves, Geoffrey of Monmouth is not the first person to, to cover this material. It was already in circulation and fairly well covered by then. There's a lot of saints' lives as well, Welsh uh, lives of the saints, where Arthur appears as a kind of a side character. So I've used a lot of stuff from the saints' lives as well. More okay. about the legend and the reality of King Arthur with Mark and Jean and Tim. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call. I was volunteering on a project to get locally grown food into a school. That project was a complete failure, and I discovered that there were few local farmers, there's only four days' worth of food in the grocery stores, and everything comes 1,500 miles via a just-in-time trucking system. I lost friends and family who told me I was crazy to worry about that, but I kept at it. I'm Marjorie Wildcraft. Those of us who know what's going on in the world know you need to become self-reliant before the dollar collapses. I've created a free webinar at GCNfood.com. 
I can show you, like I've shown hundreds of thousands of people, how to grow lots of food, even if you have no experience, you're older, or you're out of shape. Do it now, before the stores are boarded up and food is not available at any price. Go to GCNfood.com. GCNfood.com. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Now, based on what I'm listening, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark Ollie, the references, written references to King Arthur, Merlin, etc., came about hundreds of years after he purportedly lived, correct? Yes and no. Okay, um, the fact that they were written down at a particular time doesn't mean that the stories weren't in circulation. And you've also then got to consider that whatever the earliest you know, written references are, if it's in the 800s and 900s, not only have those stories got to be important enough to have survived what happened in 542 AD when you had this giant catastrophe, they've also then got to appeal to the culture that's writing them down. I mean, the Saxons hated him with a vengeance, so they didn't write a single word about him. They avoided him like the plague. But the Danes and the Vikings and subsequent invaders really liked him, so they actually took the trouble to start writing things down. But his fame, you know, his uh, renown and the stories that were being told about him actually survived for a couple of hundred years, you know, before they were, were written down, which is, you know, amazing. That's pretty incredible that he survived that long. And there are, like I say, these incidental references in the saints' lives and things, which which make you think people must have known what those stories were for them to make it into these saints' lives. You don't write about a person that's that's unknown, but it's mostly limited to Wales, and it's mostly written in archaic Welsh. So you're looking at something that's, that's very uh, monocultural at this point. So the process is almost... I mean, there's the, the last chapter of the book, The Legend, which is part five just deals with the development of the written records and it's a history in itself people who say oh you know there's absolutely nothing you know it's all medieval nonsense they need to read that last section of the book you know don't be put off because it is readable it is a gigantic academic sort of you know list of, of important significant books and that but once you start getting into that section then it really answers that question in a big way that's what survived, you know, and that's how it developed. So you're right. I mean, uh, probably in his lifetime, people didn't, you know, people who lived in, in North Wales, where he came from, probably thought, yeah, he wasn't bad. He was all right. You know, he, he did his job kind of thing. The Saxons, as I said, hated him and probably hadn't got the foggiest idea who it was that was giving him a serious ass kicking. You know, they wouldn't really have appreciated him at all. And then the Vikings and Danes are coming in thinking, well, hang on a minute, we've got Beowulf and we've got a few other heroes, you know, Holger the Dane and all this, that and the other. We've got all these amazing heroes. What are we going to do in Britain? Where's the British equivalent, you know? And fairly quickly, because the book deals with this as well, fairly quickly when they were messing about in in Wales, they picked up on this guy called Arthur. By the time Geoffrey Monmouth got hold of him, he was really well known. You know, there was uh, Geoffrey wouldn't have bothered writing him into his history uh, unless there was already material about him. There are carvings on churches, you know, in the ten hundreds in Italy um, and places like that. There's a giant mosaic in Otranto that has Arthur featured in carvings and tiles and things like that. That would not have happened 
you know, 100 years before Geoffrey, unless this character was really strong and already known. And as I said, you know, there's this massive poem about this this warrior, and uh, right at the very end, he gets this little bit of a slagging off. You know, yeah, he was great, but by hell, he was no, he was no Arthur. You know, doesn't really, you know, doesn't doesn't compare. You know. <laughs> So things like that make it an interesting book because you are you are getting the truth. You know, this is what we have and this is where it's come from. I think I'm the first person really to – I'd like to blow my own trumpet and say nail it, but I'm sure people will, will find bits that I missed and things like that. But I have to say I have been at it 45 years. Uh, it's taken 45 years to get the book into print and written and finished. I started it in 1977 when I uh, worked on a film, a Super 8mm film for a, a film society back then, and I sort of got the bug. So, you know, it's took me a while to do it. But don't be put off. It's not as big and bad and ugly as it looks. Uh, and if you want to order it, get the hardback, because I'm just looking at my copy now. It's really sexy in hardback. It's just really nice. There you go. How have you managed to segue into an advert? <laughs> <laughs> You managed to segue into an ad for the book. <laughs> this is probably a stupid question, but is Arthur the actual name, or has it been modernized? I mean, you know, uh, you know, back in his day, in, in whatever language that they were speaking at the time, would they have been saying Arthur? Actually, that's a brilliant question. Okay, I'm, I'm going to hats off to you for that one, because that is a really, really good question. All the other knights, all of them, have got Welsh names that don't match what we're used to. Um, so, for example, Way, uh, Gwain is known as Walwen. Uh, Guinevere is unpronounceable. I can't even... Winlogy is the, the, the equivalent, you know. So, no, actually, he stayed as Arthur. Be because it's um, a Roman name, he wasn't the first Arthur, by the way. There's quite a few of them before him. Goes all the way, goes all the way back to the, uh, the first century AD. Um, he wasn't the first. So... This name became sort of enshrined, if you like, as as, as a sort of uh, um, a Latin hero, and it's always been Arthur, no matter what. So all the other variants you get, I mean, these these people have tried to be really clever in modern times and say, oh, it's Arthuis, Arknu, you know, uh, Arturus, Arturius, uh, you know, anything with A-R-T at the beginning, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's it, you know, it's got to be Arthur. No, absolutely not. What I found was that without doubt, every single time his name is Arthur – because the name is really important. He's named after a hero. You know, he's named after some prominent line, if you like, of warrior heroes that the Romans were aware of. Um, and he's always called Arthur. So and there's a couple of people as well, heroic people after him. Uh, they were still calling people Arthur right into the Saxon period. In fact, I'm going to blow your mind now. There was a prophecy. I think it was Merlin made a prophecy and said that, you know, in Britain's greatest hour of need, uh, King, King Arthur will return. So, I mean, that tells you it was a later prophecy. And currently we're about to put um, Charles III on the throne. I think his uh, coronation is set for May uh, and his middle, one of his middle names is Arthur. So, yeah, that was an extremely good question. The name is crucially important. It is. Uh, although, you know, you can only guess at what it means. Um, you know, in Welsh, it's derived from the word for bear. So that's made people think that he was a big, you know, big, strong, strapping, hairy bloke. But um, I, I'm not sure I'd go down that route. I do mention it in the book, but... Clarify this to me. I'm trying to understand something here. Clarify this for me. So is Arthur not one person, but... A group of people or a title, just like Merlin is? Arthur himself, who we're looking at, is Arthur of the Britons. Okay, that's him. And he lived at a very specific 
um, period of time, indeed. So he, he has a birth date, etc. And I'll just check this, make sure I get it right. I know he dies in five three nine, but the Welsh have uh, the Welsh have got a birth date four eight three. He's born in four eight three A.D. and he dies in five three nine. And that is that is the bloke. That is the guy we're talking about. That having been said, there were people before him who carried the name Arthur, and there were people after him that carried the name Arthur. So it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, when you get these famous footballers, you know, that, are, you know, have different names and that, and then all of a sudden all the kids in that year end up, you know, being named the same. I think I'm thinking of David Beckham, you know, in that particular year, there were that many Davids, you know, people christened as David. It, it was ridiculous. And basically that's where Arthur's name comes from. His, his uh, parents gave him that name because it was a, a really good, special, privileged, heroic uh, Roman name with a great pedigree. So it's like, yeah, go on, we'll, uh, we'll name him that. But it's Arthur the Briton specifically that we're looking at. So no no other name other than Arthur in no other period of time is this particular guy. He's, he's got to be there at the end of the 5th century and the beginning of the 6th century. That's who you're looking for. Uh, I, I don't do going into, I take great pains in the book to say that is the guy you're looking for. Because there are, there are other people out there with the name Arthur, but it's just not him. So hopefully that answers your question. We've got a question from uh, one of our listeners, uh, uh, Richard Hodkins, who, uh, who who always always comes up with some of the best uh, <laughs> questions. Good, and, and he wants to know: um, Can you talk about what is myth, and what is legend about King Arthur? And uh, he also asked, uh, did the Merlin character really exist? And we've already you know talked about that. Uh, but you know, what about King Arthur? I mean, you know, it it. Uh, and, and we're going to be going to a uh, break in a little bit, so uh, I guess Gene will have to make this one a cliffhanger. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, 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 what is the truth and, and what is the fiction about King Arthur? <laughs> we'll hang on the cliff with Tim and Gene and Mark. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. And I'm going to give you a free copy of my lecture that tells you exactly how to do it. In fact, after you've lived a long and healthy life, there should be only two documents in your medical chart, a birth certificate and a death certificate. I'm Dr. Wallach with a warning. If you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, and other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. My free lecture is going to reveal what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. 
There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in my free lecture called Deadly Recipe. So call toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. Again, that's toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. 1-855-79-YOUNG. A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. Six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our responsibility. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. I was thinking there that we'd hear the best British accent that Tim Swartz can provide. And he can't engage. I don't. I don't want my. I don't want Mark to think that I'm making fun of him. You know. Oh gosh, I'm, I'm not. I've got to say here, I live right in the middle, literally in the middle of Liverpool and Manchester. Oh, so, I love that. So you can imagine you've got the Scouse accent for Liverpool and you've got the Mank accent for Manchester, and I'm bang in the middle. So. How on earth I've managed to survive this long without some strange, weird, hybrid, pronounced accent? Um, I, I really don't know. So no, no, you couldn't. You couldn't possibly uh, compare to what I live with on a daily basis up here. <laughs> no, my accent's quite acceptable compared to most. Um, I mean, if you want Scouse, think of the Beatles, but then some. Yeah, to answer the question, uh, to get back to that, the difference between myth and reality. Okay, um, I suppose uh, the answer to that really is in the method. Once you know when this particular Arthur is alive, so you know that he's coming out at the end of the Roman period, he's alive at the end of the 5th century, going into the beginning of the 6th century, then there's a certain 
number of things that he just couldn't have done and he couldn't have owned, you know, he couldn't have been that way because at that point in time, they didn't exist. And there is a certain number of things that he could have done. You know, there is a likelihood that he would have been familiar with certain things based on when he lived, which is why that date is so important. So the the simplest possible answer if you know your history, you know your archaeology. I'm an archaeologist by profession, you know, so I dig through layers and my specialism is to know where things sit in, in time. So that's assisted me in putting the book together. You know, that will then tell you really, in a nutshell, what is myth and what isn't. That kind of answers the question. There is a, a kind of a secondary proviso on that for the benefit of the listeners. Uh, and the other thing that might help you in, in deciding is have a look at where the source material is. So the geography plays a part in this. So if you're looking at a tale that's essentially based on Wales or it's coming out of Wales or it's from the Welsh records or it dates back to medieval times where they've gone to records which are stored in Wales or in the Old North, the north of England. Uh, If you're looking at something like that, then chances are you're looking at something that has a grain of truth in it somewhere. But as soon as it's pulled out of that context and you start looking at, you know, what was written by the Normans, written in London, written all around the world, etc., people who are unfamiliar with the background information at that time tend to fill in the blanks. You know, they tend to make stuff up. Uh, somebody even accused Geoffrey Monmouth of, of, of making a heap of all the information and inventing what he didn't know. And they made that accusation in something like 1125 AD when he'd only just written it. You know, so I'm not saying anything out of order here. It's something that scholars have known for a long, long time. People did tend to embroider things a bit. But what I said um, earlier on in the interview about people having to stick to the original basic story that was still true right up to the time of Jeffrey. Because if you didn't, you know, uh, it's like, um, you know, if you have a major star nowadays and a major brand, you know, that's familiar to the viewers or the listeners in this case, uh, you can only mess with that brand so much before it's no longer acceptable, before it's no longer accepted, it's no longer believed. Um, so I hope that really answers it. So, yeah, it's it's down to when he lived, so that makes whatever's possible possible. It's down to where he lived, which makes kind of sense of whether or not you've got the uh, authentic legend or not. And then I suppose as just as a bolt-on, as a proviso to that, you know, you've just got to be careful with the original material. You've got to kind of understand, uh, you know, what has survived and you know, uh, what's out there to build on, what the foundations are. So I suppose this book, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth a thousand years ago, you know, back in the 1100s, he he put out his, you know, History of the Kings of Britain and that kind of set the tone then for the next thousand years, you know, of King Arthur legends. I'm kind of secretly hoping the Polychronicon does the same thing, you know. Here we are in 2023 and I'm hoping people will read this and go, oh, hang on a minute, hey up, you know, and take it from here you know, go from here and see what they make of it. It's kind of a, a new a new polychronicon for a new age in, in that sense, uh, very much for now. And we seem very keen on finding out what the truth is at the moment. You know, there's this real digging into what is true and what is false. So, it, you know, it, it's a book of its time, uh, as, as indeed a lot of the other Arthur books in the past have been. I hope that answers the question anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was that was yeah. great. The The title of your book... You've got uh, uh, Arthur, Joseph, and Merlin. So now, yeah. what does Joseph of Arimathea have to do with all this? Oh, right. Okay. Um, it's a bit of an odd one, 
when you first look at it because everyone knows who Merlin is, Merlin is everybody knows who, Ar- who Arthur is uh, but then you've got this thing where you've got the grail you know the holy grail and people start to look at that and that is eternally associated uh, with Arthur you know everything from the early legends right through to Monty Python you know and all that it's all it's Arthur so you've got to look at the grail when you look at the grail it starts with the biblical legends it starts in bible times and the first person really to get to grips with anything that we would call a grail is joseph of arimathea that's where it begins and it's his story that brings the grail or grails plural out of the situation that they start in in the upper room and at the crucifixion because him and uh, him and his associates had contact intimate contact with both the last supper and the crucifixion so it's him and his immediate group that gather together the holy relics that arthur and his knights later on then go on quests and searches for and the, the grail of course is included in that the trouble is by the time you get to medieval times the term grail or sangral sangrial is is a viking term sang is the affirmative the in capital letters graal is uh, is a grail is it's derived from gruel which is a form of uh, bread porridge that's served in a stone bowl so you're not just looking for any old porridge bowl you're looking for the the porridge bowl sangral the the grail which of course ideally would be either the cup that jesus used at the last supper or it would be the cup of the disciples which was the one he passed around it's got to be one of those two uh, both of those were known to have existed at the church of the holy sepulchre right through anglo-saxon times right through the days of, of arthur so clearly that's not the grail arthur's ultimately looking for uh, at the time he lived because they they actually those grails end up going across to spain uh, in 2012 somebody was doing some research um, over in the middle east looking at islamic records and they actually found the shipping receipts for those two bowls or certainly one of them if not both of them uh, going from jerusalem to spain so those cups are now currently in spain it's a long story i know we haven't got loads of time to go into it but that's where they've gone the grail that jo- uh, the grail that joseph arimathea brought here uh, they were two glass Roman vials or, or cruets, one with the blood of Christ and one with the sweat of Christ. Uh, and when Joseph was buried here in North Wales, they were buried with him. So when you see that the knights are searching for the grail, that's the grail they're actually after. Okay, so we know that it's not something that Harrison Ford and Sean Connery did for a movie. <laughs> It's not located in some kind of chamber where you remove something from the chamber and the entire thing comes crashing down on you. Not going to happen here. Mark Holy, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz, you're in. Well, the Pentecost. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. 
Are you afraid to go to the mailbox because of letter after letter from the IRS? Are they stacking on more and more penalties and interest? By now, you know the problem won't go away on its own. Don't let the IRS chase you to your grave with penalties and interest and liens and levies. You need real help now. I'm Dan Pilla. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I help thousands of people solve tax problems they thought couldn't be solved. I can help you too. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. USA News Update. Former Vice President Mike Pence is not too happy about the prospect his former boss may be arrested on Tuesday in New York City. The fact that the Manhattan DA thinks uh, that uh, indicting President Trump is his top priority, I think, is just tells you everything you need to know about the radical left in this country. In an exclusive interview with ABC's This Week, Pence said it just feels like a politically charged prosecution. Two U.S. senators would like to see TV cameras in federal courtrooms and in the U.S. Supreme Court. Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley and Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar are co-sponsors of the Sunshine in the Courtroom Act. They say allowing television coverage would give more transparency into the court system for the public. And it's not going to be a repeat national championship for the Kansas Jayhawks. The top-seeded team was eliminated in the men's NCAA basketball tournament in the second round on Saturday. John Schaefer, USA News. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system. And it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. The first word is shop, spelled S-H-O-P, then the word super, and then the word tea. The complete website is shopsupertea.com, or call us at 818-984-6100, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100. ShopSuperTea.com. I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call. I was volunteering on a project to get locally grown food into a school. That project was a complete failure, and I discovered that there were few local farmers, there's only four days' worth of food in the grocery stores, and everything comes 1,500 miles via a just-in-time trucking system. I lost friends and family who told me I was crazy to worry about that, but I kept at it. I'm Marjorie Wildcraft. Those of us who know what's going on in the world know you need to become self-reliant before the dollar collapses. I've created a free webinar at GCNfood.com. I can show you, like I've shown hundreds of thousands of people, how to grow lots of food, even if you have no experience, you're older, or you're out of shape. Do it now, before the stores are boarded up and food is not available at any price. Go to GCNfood.com. GCNfood.com. This is Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
I'm actually a huge fan of um, Steven Spielberg, so I've, I've got to sort of say that yes and no. He did a fantastic job of his research because that word grail, grail, is applied to, in medieval times, any cup or any chalice that's used in communion. People didn't appreciate what communion was. They didn't read the Bible in medieval times because it wasn't available. So the stories were unique to people of certain religious orders, Templars being one of them. Uh, and I do cover this in the book as well because I go on after the lifetime of Arthur in the book. Um, so technically, any vessel that is consistently used for communion could be termed a grail. So I'm not going to go totally against what Spielberg did, and I really appreciate where he was coming from in, that, in the Indiana Jones movie. But it's not the grail, how can I put it? It's not the grail we're looking for. You know, it's not the one we're going after for the original Arthur, but it could be a grail. It's Agral, not Sangral. It's Agral. So, yeah, it's possible. And it depends again then. I mean, you mentioned earlier spiritual beliefs. If you're into the bread and the wine actually being, you know, the body and blood of Christ, that goes way back. I mean, it goes all the way back to Abraham in the Old Testament. So you're going way, way back. This idea of alcoholic fluid of some kind and a grain-based uh, substance in a container that sustains you. I mean, that goes archaeologically, that goes all the way back to Neolithic times because pre prehistory. Because that's what we find from pottery analysis so it goes back a hell of a long way if you go with a spiritual view you know that actually now has been appropriated for you know the the, the blood and body of christ then you have a belief there that was really coming into its own it was beginning to establish itself around about the time of arthur because as well as the druids of course we also had the christians uh, so i tend to cover that in the book so now we're back full circle we're back to why joseph and the biblical material is so important it's the material Arthur would have been aware of at the time. He sat there, you know, it's whatever it is, um, old Christmas Day, I think it's 16th of January, the Celtic Christmas. He sat there at his, at his table, which probably was round, you know, and he's got this vision for sending his knights out to find the grail. What I do is I give you the reason why he's got that information the geography, who it is that, that brought that to this part of the world and why it involves him, you know, and that's the Joseph of Arimathea bit. So anybody that's into the grail, that's the Joseph bit on the cover. Uh, and the grail is a, a substantial issue. You know, like I say, I think I've got about 27 variations of the grail in the book. And there's, a, there's probably a lot more that I've missed. Uh, but there's some really nice ones in there and some really unusual ones. <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen some fascinating pictures of cups, grails, that have been discovered over the years that have been speculated to be the grails. Some of them, you know, gold and encrusted with jewels, which I think would be unlikely. Then there was like, there was a small one that uh, uh, came up rather recently. Not the wooden one, but one that was made out of, I think, a uh, like a precious crystal or something like that, which almost kind of fits the description of, of uh, you said, uh, Roman glass. But I would think that uh, glass would be fragile and that by now it's just a million little pieces scattered across the countryside. Um, it's, it's not something you can really apply logic to. In, in the book, I say that literally the grail, sangral, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been clay, glass, stone, wood, you know, pretty much anything that was available could have qualified as, as, as sangral, the grail in that sense, because it's whatever was available for the Last Supper. You know, I don't, I don't know quite what they use for that dinner service. But the one that's dual encrusted, that actually, I think it's the, um, what's it called now? I'm trying to remember. 
I'm going to see if I can look it up really quickly. Sacro, Sacro, Sacro Cantina. Anyway, it's the one in Spain. I'm not going to beat about the bush. It's the Spanish one. Uh, Basically, you've got a Roman agate cup. They were quite expensive because they were made of stone, so it's not a cheap thing. You've got one of these agate cups, um, and what they've basically done is they've mounted it on a base to turn it into a a sort of medieval chalice. But that's not what it would originally have looked like, Uh, and they've been able, through the wonders of archaeology, to separate this stone cup and have a look at that just on its own. And they actually do think it's first century Roman. And the funny thing is there were two of these that disappeared, as I said, from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And in Spain, lo and behold, there are two of them, and they're both the same. They're these alabaster cups. Um, The kicker in these uh, receipts is, though, that when it was sent over during the times of the Crusades, Saladin got wind of it, and he asked could they take a little cutting a little chip off the rim because his daughter was ill and he wanted this thing to be sent to him this chip of the holy cup to cure his daughter Uh, and lo and behold one of these cups has a chip out of the lip Uh, it's the holy chalice of san isadora uh, San Isidoro is, is the one I'm referring to. That's the main one. Uh, but there's another one, the Holy uh, Holy Chalice of Valencia uh, is the other agate one. Uh, and chances are they're actually both correct. I'm not, I'm not going to say which is which, but... Uh, and there are others. There are others. So, you know, the mystery is still there. Did I get a flash then for another question? Yeah. Oh, there's always yeah. questions. Lots of questions. So, Arthur then lived in a very interesting time in the history of Britain. Okay, so you say that he lived approximately, you know, like, uh, what would it be, 5th century? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the turn, it's the turn of the, it's either side of 500 AD. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got this this interesting mixture of, of old paganism, going on, mm. uh, uh, Druid, uh, uh, Druidism, things like that, and then you've got Christianity, as it as it was in that early period, making its inroads into, yeah. uh, into Great Britain. So, uh, you know, I mean, what, um, because, you know, once again, I mean, you know, you've got all of these uh, uh, stories that, you know, basically came out in the Victorian era, which is very Christian-based, but what would it have been like for Arthur at that time? Well, um, wow, you talk about a turning point for Arthur. I mean, it, the, the, the time he lived in was a turning, a turning point for the entire world. Um, what was happening at that point in time? Um, basically, Christianity had existed since the first century. Obviously, it had spread across the face of the, the planet, and Constantine the Great eventually made it possible to be a Christian without being persecuted. But what had happened by that point, by the 300s, 400s AD, is you basically had three churches. You had the one based in Jerusalem that was based on Egyptian and, uh, and uh, Jewish material. You had one based in Rome, which was based on uh, Mithraic and Roman material, but you had one over here, founded by Joseph of Arimathea, the oldest Christian church in the world, uh, somewhere between 52 and 54 AD, uh, that was based on Celtic Druidic material. So they had a different type of church. And you can actually see this argument breaking out between this country and Rome. It's like just a huge bust-up that takes place just before Arthur comes to prominence. 
So, <laughs> you know, it, that's that's world world beating, world changing. And what most people what most people don't realise is that um, actually they think that the mother of the first non-apostolic pope. So it's uh, Pope Liner. So I think you're going back to the whatever it is, the 70s AD. Uh, the mother was British. Hmm. So, so there's an, a lot of connections in Christianity that come back here uh, to, that made us incredibly powerful, and they're based up here in the north because that's where Joseph was. So you've got this thing where the old north has claim to those um, the, the early Christians and and the first Christian martyrs. Uh, you've also then got this idea that Rome is collapsing. I mean, that was no small event. You know, um, the Visigoths attacked Rome. The last king, Theodoric, sent to Britain for reinforcements. And that's possibly the reason in later life why Arthur then sets off for the continent to fight for Theodoric. Now, the thing is, he loses and you end up with Goths ruling Rome. So it's the end of the Roman Empire completely. So that's pretty earth shattering. That happens in Arthur's lifetime. The Druids then fizzle out because of the effects of the Saxons. So it's the end of the Druids. And you get this sucking great big volcanic eruption accompanied by meteorite showers and earthquakes all over the planet. We're going to leave this planet for a second and we'll be back okay. with Tim, Mark and Gene. You're in <laughs> the Pericast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Do you ever get the feeling that the world is being held together with duct tape? Every day we're thrown some new meaningless drama in the fake news to distract us from the reality we're all about to face. Between the government trying to print their way out of debt, military conflicts, the disintegration of our most trusted institutions, and a looming food shortage, preparedness is no longer a choice. It's a necessity. You can trust my Patriot Supply. Our emergency food kits come packed with tasty meals, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one kit for each person in your family. Self-reliance is the only alternative to government food lines. Time is running out. Become ungovernable. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and save on dozens of different emergency food kits while you can. These kits are in stock, ship fast, and arrive in unmarked boxes for your privacy. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com before the next crisis strikes. MyPatriotSupply.com If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. 
These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Wellness and self-care doesn't have to be complicated. So keep it simple and take good care of yourself with Sunny Bay Heating Pads. Our heating pads soothe pains in the neck, back, and shoulders while relaxing muscles and increasing blood circulation. Sunny Bay Heating Pads have always been made in the USA and hand-filled to perfection with the highest quality materials. Sunny Bay Heating Pads are the perfect wellness gift for loved ones or yourself. See all of our high-quality products at sunny-bay.com including heated body pads, neck pillows, heated neck and body wraps, and our stress-reducing lavender line. They're all affordable, durable, and in stock now and ready for immediate shipping direct from sunny-bay.com. Read our trusted, authentic, and real reviews at sunny-bay.com or just search for Sunny Bay Heating Pad. To your good health and wellness from Sunny Bay. This is James Fox, director of The Phenomenon and Moment of Contact. You're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We are back on planet Earth, I think, Mark. Let us continue. So there you go. Basically, that's the reason why I think all roads, as it were, lead to Arthur. Because when people look back, there were so many things coming to an end or changing, turning into something else that were long established, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Things were kind of coming to an end. It was the end of the old world. And the last bastion of that old world, certainly in this country, if not in the Western Roman Empire, the last bastion of that was Arthur, in potentially in the what was intended originally as the capital of the Western Roman Empire, which is Chester. Of course, the capital of the Eastern was Constantinople, Istanbul. That survived, that carried on, that grew into the Byzantine Empire. But unfortunately, it didn't survive over here, mainly due to the Saxons and the Danes and the Vikings and invaders. But it's it's just huge. It's enormous. And it's like you read the book. And as you're reading the book, I'm hoping it will give people a sense of just how monumental the whole matter of Britain, the whole material that's behind it is. You know, it's, it's a huge change. If people want to look into the catastrophe, by the way, there is a book called Catastrophe written by a chap called David Keyes. Uh, science and everything in it are brilliant. You know, it's a bit of a heavy read, but it, it, it really shows you uh, exactly what happens. You know, Arthur dies, boom, the world comes to an end. He dies in 539, 542, wham, up goes this enormous volcano. 
and it's it's worldwide. Uh, it could have been the Leonid meteorite shower that triggered it off in actual fact. They've subsequently discovered that there's a link to that and to volcanoes going off all over the world, South America, you name it. Even the Aztec Mayan culture were effect, was affected by that worldwide uh, movement in, in the Earth. And it's just, it's, it's you know, earth-shattering. And really, it all comes back, it focuses back on Arthur. So that, if you like, is, is, is a thread that runs through the end of Arthur's life. You can't really avoid that because he was very much a, a person of his time. Back to you guys. Questions are good. I really like the questions, start. They're really good. Well, you can see, though, I mean, since a lot of religious beliefs are based on catastrophic events, all right, how people at that time in Great Britain would view, okay, here their great hero has, has passed away, and then all of a sudden, all you know what is breaking yeah. loose. <laughs> yeah, I mean that uh, that had to have been soul crushing. Yes, uh, and it was. It's interesting because looking at, at the immediate references referring back to the time of Arthur. So you know, Arthur's gone. The cataclysms happened. Uh, it took them about eighty years to get a structure together in the Old North sufficient to have any kind of rulership or, or chieftainship. Mm. So you've, you've got at least a lifetime, if not two lifetimes, before they actually get over the chaos, by which time, of course, the place is crawling with Saxons. So, you know, it's a different culture. It's a different world, a different place. You, there were so many people in Britain that, that were wiped out. The Saxons were literally sending messages home saying, you know, come and invade the place. It's empty. You know, there's loads of space, you know, just come over here, you know. I don't think it was all bad. I mean, I, I reckon some of the villages, some of the people needed extra people. Um, so it was kind of a, you know, a, a sort of osmosis type invasion over a period of time, as was the Roman invasion before it. So, you know, the cataclysm, yes, they spiritually, they clearly, whatever path they followed, whether it was, you know, Celtic, Druidic, Norse, Christian, whatever, they would have looked to the power or the powers as being some kind of a background cause and what they're suffering is the effect you know have we done something wrong you know do we need to repent whatever which might kind of give you an idea what the early early christian um, medieval approach to life was you know the idea of you know sins and judgment and you know i mean you, you look back at that sort of hieronymus bosch type period of you know church judgment and that you could see why they got away with it because folks were just reeling after what had happened you know populations would have just been wiped out you know, it was a terrible, terrible time um, going right through into the 600s. So, yes, you know, I mean, it killed Druidry. It brought Druidry to an end. Uh, it completely altered the form of Christianity. It became medieval Christianity, which I now refer to as churchianity. Uh, it became that. So many things changed. You know, your politics, your rulership, your social structures. The whole world was a different place afterwards, which then, funnily enough, becomes the world we live in today. So, uh, you know, is the Arthur tale relevant now? Is this book relevant now? Yes, very much so. It's the new foundation for where we are now. You know, the way things were before Arthur is, is, is a different world, an entirely different world, literally, to the world we're living in now. We are sort of post-apocalypse, if you like, uh, but most people don't realise the apocalypse occurred because it occurred in the Dark Ages and, you know, no tangible human records could be kept for some time thereafter. So uh, it's interesting. that I mean, that comes up in the book, obviously. It's a, a major factor in what's going on. And I think... 
I said, I said it to somebody, you know, most people think it's just a book on Arthur, but it's not. Uh, there's so much more in that. I think it deserves that title, Polychronicon. I stuck stuck to my guns there because it, it's a bit more than, you know, just a, a fantasy tale about some shiny knight. You know, it's, it's a bit more than that. All right. We've got a, a question from one of our listeners, and the, the listener goes by the name of uh, SRL Plus. And I don't know if you if you're supposed to say that as a word or, or just spell it out. So I'll just spell it out and say S R L plus. And he wants to know: Are there any tales of sorcery to be told? Not sorcery, but sorcery. And since the Paracast does do a lot of shows about UFOs and flying saucers, it's you can expect this kind of question. <laughs> Okay, um, it's another good question. Somebody actually asked me this. Uh, I'm sure before about you know are, are there any UFOs in the Arthur tales? Um, I'm going to be slightly ambiguous and say uh, unidentified flying objects or unidentified aerial phenomena, as they're known now, um, do appear under other titles, other names in the old tales so for example uh, just as it's probably not a great example but it's one uh, there is a comet there is an actual comet that occurs in the time of uther pendragon and it is referred to as a celestial dragon so then the inference there is that dragons can you know fly across the sky on fire that's the inference but there's nearly always in that case because that's why it's in the book there's some fact behind what we're seeing as a clearly you know um fantasized label as it were uh, I'd, i've not found i mean you could say okay are there any little green men well if you go to the irish tales yeah fairy folk they're everywhere you know what you've got to do is you've got to look for the cultural equivalent so I'm, I'm not going to say no, there are no flying objects. Um, nobody specifically lists silver discs flying around. I know they turn up in paintings from sort of the medieval period onwards, but nobody in the Arthurian tales refers to silver discs. But but they do refer to a lot of uh, spiritual and visionary things uh, that occur, like, you know, like fairy people dragons you know things like that that can clearly fly etc so you've just got to sort of dig into and, and find the equivalent uh, to to ufos uh, magic magic in general um depends on your definition of magic uh, i'd rather like the idea that magic is is taking what we already have in the world around us and giving it a push or giving it a shove so it, it kind of it, it goes off and does something exceptional that's what magic is so people see things you know you're not bringing something out of nothing you're using what's available to create something that is essentially magical and of course the answer to that is yes yes of course that happens um, i said it early on you know you can imagine merlin standing on a mountaintop with his with his staff you know going anybody now i'm going to turn the sun off you know boof, the whole thing just goes off well that to anybody ordinary man in the street back in you know 500 ad that is going to look pretty awesome you know that is going into legend but merlin as an astrologer would have known when the next eclipse was so what he's doing is he's giving it a shove he's giving it a push he's adding extra meaning extra value to something that he's doing if you times that by his vast knowledge of things like herbs astronomy astrology chemistry what we now refer to as the sciences and then there's 
there's other bits of things he could possibly have been aware of things like magnetism um light and light lenses magnification uh, you know there's so much technology in the ancient world you're into sort of parts and things like that you're definitely on von daniken turf here uh, there's so much stuff that he would have known of uh, because he's in, in, in you know his his druidic network is in contact with with the continent so whatever turns up in greece italy you know france spain wherever even north africa he would have been aware of what was out there and you know he would have come up with some amazing things absolutely incredible things we yeah. have more incredible things to bring you with <laughs> mark and gene and tim you're in the paracast <laughs> Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill a minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Classic science fiction at its best. Available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R O C K O I D S.com. Radio. Why should I advertise on radio? There's nothing to look at, no pictures. Listen, you can do things on radio you couldn't possibly do on TV. That'll be the day. All right, watch this. <clears throat> okay, people, and now when I give you the cue, I want the 700-foot mountain of whipped cream to roll into Lake Michigan, which has been drained and filled with hot chocolate. Then the Royal Canadian Air Force will fly overhead, towing a 10-ton maraschino cherry, which will be dropped into the whipped cream to the cheering of 25,000 extras. All right, cue the mountain. Now, you want to try that on television? Well... You see, radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination. Advertising your business with GCN is simple, effective, and more affordable than you might think. Visit advertise.gcnlive.com for more info. Take your business to the next level. Welcome back to the Paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Mark Ali, let's have more incredible Okay, things. I was... Uh... I was just going to launch in and say, I was just going to finish with the, um, uh, you know, you've got to sort of look at the Romans as well. Whatever the Romans were doing, you know, um, Merlin would have been keenly aware of, of what the Romans were doing. There's a possibility, for example, that, that the Picts as a tribe were particularly fond of keeping big cats as a pet. You know, so they could have had lions, tigers, pumas, you name it, all sorts of things, ocelots, forest cats. I mean, at this point in Britain as well, you've got things like bears, wolves, otters 
beavers, you know, they're, they're all, all things that are now extinct were still around, you know, before the cataclysm. So, um, you know, some of the things Merlin could have come out with, you know, you know I'm going to make this up now, but this would be amazing. You can imagine Merlin sat there, you know, at a banquet and everyone's like, well, Merlin, what amazing thing have you got for us tonight? You know, and he goes, hey, wait till you see this. And he walks in with a giraffe. You know, that's going to be like, whoa, what's that? You know, that that's one hell of a dragon. You know, it's what, 20 foot, 22 foot tall. It eats leaves, you know, what the hell is that? So you can imagine these moments, you know, when you look back at, in time, you know, uh, they're magical moments and they have that element of magic about them. You know, he could have known about lost technology. Yes, I'm willing to go down that route. He could have levitated stones because in the one legend, he brings over stones from Ireland. Well, if you appreciate that South Wales was at this point settled by the Irish, that's where Stonehenge came from. So you're starting to look at plausibility here, how they got the stones across to, you know, across all the, the territory to Salisbury Plain is, is anybody's guess. But the legend is that he flew them. He flew them from Ireland. So you've got these hints of, you know, what I'm going to call von Daniken technology. You know, you've got these hints of uh, ancient world things going on. So yes. Yeah, I'm going to say yes to magic. Yeah, I'm sure that people would have been under the impression that he could do some pretty jolly amazing things. All right. Well, you brought up Stonehenge. So you know, I'm going to have to ask, and I know that, <laughs> that this was really more of a uh, – a modern association, and I mean modern by any time after, I think, the, what is it, the 15th century, <laughs> where various standing stones uh, across Great Britain have been associated with uh, King Arthur. And any, you know, do you think there was any uh, validity to uh, those claims? I mean, not just Stonehenge, but others. Uh, well, there's, there's a few observations there. I mean, uh, what I did tend to find when I was doing the research is that if there's a prehistoric monument there, so you've got this whopping great big whatever it is made of stone, and it's been there for hundreds, thousands of years, they tended to use them as territorial markers. So, you know, for example, there's in Herefordshire, this Arthur's Stone. Well, that could easily be the furthest point that Arthur's territory reached or a place where Arthur would have stopped because it's a major landscape feature. So I, I don't see that as a, as, a, as a problem. What you've got to be extremely careful of, though, is, like you say, in medieval times, people all wanted a piece of Arthur. And as soon as they started drawing maps and then printing maps and then you finish up with ordnance survey maps, all that is pretty much nonsense. You know, the names don't go back far enough for us to be certain that they have anything directly to do with Arthur. But then the idea that he flew stones over uh, and that it's Stonehenge, I think the story might have some kind of validity. But in the story, it's referred to as the Giant's Dance. And the Giant's Dance are piles of stones near a Welsh town called Ceredrydion, which is not far from Bala Lake. Um, and they're across a hillside there. And from my research, that I would say that's probably where the piles of stones that Merlin uh, had assembled that's where they still are today there's probably about half a dozen different mounds of these volcanic stones uh, they all have strange laser cut lines in them and things like that one one's cut in half but they're all sat in piles on top of limestone so i would love to get a proper analysis of the rock done for those and find out if they do come from ireland uh, but certainly they don't belong there they're not made from local rock uh, so yeah that's that's i think that's the real giant stand so again it's a case of you know yeah there's a great deal of 
truth in the story. Yes, there are piles of stones associated with Merlin, but the good old Victorians um, got hold of a medieval tale about Stonehenge, and that's where we get the modern-day legend from. Uh, so it's not Stonehenge, you know, and Glastonbury doesn't have anything to do with it whatsoever, and neither does Tintagel or Winchester with its round table. I think I clear that up in about two pages at the beginning of the book. Um, that's not the legend we're dealing with here. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this, I've got to take this back to you know, what you were talking about previously about yep. uh, you know Merlin and the uh, the the possibility that uh, you know that he was using uh, uh, science for his magic. Um, considering that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, um, had an influence on ancient Britain. I mean, what's the possibility that, you know, because we know that the Greeks were very far ahead of the time, uh, oh, yeah. science, you know, uh, mathematically and with the, uh, um, you know, uh, technological aspects. I mean, so what's the possibility that, uh, that Merlin may have uh, gotten a hold of uh, some of these uh, these these great uh, ideas that were coming from Greece, and you know made use of them. You know, not just Merlin, but I guess you know the other Merlins as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely, totally. Um, I, I think that's something that does definitely comes out um, in the book. Um, the Greeks definitely visited us uh, in the BC period. Uh, there's a guy called Pythias, Pythias the Greek. Um, and he actually sails around parts of Britain and he records his his visit here. Um, and he's in something like 323 BC, 323 BC. Um, and we've got lots and lots of connections that then follow after that between us and the Greeks. Uh, and to some extent, Druidism in general, um, some of their connections go all the way back to Sanskrit. Now, Sanskrit is, is a Middle Eastern language. So, you know, uh, the word Druid. Uh, is derived from the uh, Sanskrit word for an oak, an oak tree. Um, so by the time you start looking at this, you, you realise that Druidism at this point is is a sort of compendium of knowledge and wisdom and things known from all around the world. You know, it's it's not a tiny regional British religion. It's, it's huge. I mean, there was an enormous conclave of Druids at the source of the River Seine in France, um, you know, uh, they were all over the place. Uh, they were in they the, the Greek culture came into France through Marseille. Marseille is a, a Greek colony, so they they were connections. You can follow this trail going all the way back, all the way back to Greece itself. Um, it's said, and I'm going to go into legend here because you're going to love this. Uh, if anybody watched the movie Troy. Right at the very end, because I know you guys like your movies, right at the end of Troy, um, there's a guy, I think it's uh, Orlando Bloom is playing this character called Aeneas, and, and right at the end, Aeneas is handed this sword, and it's like the sword of Troy, and they, the guy says to Aeneas, look, keep that safe, that's your right to, to rulership, you know, you've got to hold on to that, and he vanishes down a corridor and he escapes, he escapes the city of Troy. That's the guy who's said to have come to Britain and founded... The Britons, Aeneas the Greek, he's said to have come here. And so that makes us originally a Greek colony. Um, I mean, that's going way back. I mean, Troy, you're in the, you know, uh, second millennium BC. It's very, very early. But that also has consequences in Arthur's day because this idea, this concept that the Romans came and invaded us, um, it's not strictly true. Because if they believed that we were Trojan, 
in origin that we came from Troy as a race, so did the Romans. They were also descendants of Troy. So that kind of puts a different slant on it because you're thinking, hang on a minute, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Both races, that is the race that's here in Britain and the race of invaders who are the Romans, both trace their origins back into the BC period for quite a considerable time, all the way back to, to Troy and to the Trojans. So actually, what the Romans are effectively arguing is that it's a reconquest, that they own Britain anyway. You know, so I, I don't think the political map back then is quite as Victorian scholars believed it to be, you know. Um, and this book is, is upsetting a few of those apple carts along the way. We're going to have some more apple carts to deliver. Uh. Okay, and then we're going to turn them over upside down, and therefore they'll be upset. Mark, Gene, Tim, you're in. The Pyrrhicast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Tehibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea helps build red corpuscles in the blood, which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop, and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit ShopSuperTea.com. The first word is shop, spelled S-H-O-P, then the word super, and then the word tea. The complete website is ShopSuperTea.com, or call us at 818-984-6100, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100. ShopSuperTea.com. G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at TeamG'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at TeamG'day.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your longevity business. TeamG'day.com TeamG'day.com 
Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, formerly Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, Air National Guard and Reservist. I'm looking for veterans, active duty military personnel to join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. She needs your skills, courage, and loyalty more than ever. Contact GCNteam.com. Because of the financial and health care collapse, veterans are currently struggling finding jobs. Frustrated looking for a job? Change your tactics. Join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. Start a health care business with FDI Longevity 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com immediately. We're looking for military specialists who can use a computer and communicate information and execute a battle plan. Join the admirals, Navy SEALs, Marines, pilots, Army officers, military police, sheriffs, police officers, firemen, and first responders already enrolled in the 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com now. FDI Longevity will help you apply your military skills to the task of saving America through health and financial programs. Contact GCNteam.com. Enlist in GCNteam.com and save America. Who listens to radio at night? EMTs, truck drivers, law enforcement, and many other hardworking people just like you, buying products and services from companies just like yours. Many companies owe their success to radio. It's the engaging medium. Call 877-996-4327 or email advertise at GCNlive.com. That's advertise at GCNlive.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Now, the Paracast exists to turn over apple carts. Not that we don't like apples, but we turn over empty apple carts, right, Mark? Uh, yes, we do indeed. Sadly, some of the apple carts have been empty for a very long time. Um, I have to say that, you know, there'll be some academics out there who will be cheering this book on. You know, they'll be sat there going, thank goodness, at last somebody's, you know, done it. Because I think everybody knows the information in here, certainly in academic circles, but nobody's actually, you know, they've all got careers, they're all working for universities and colleges and all this, that and the other, and they just don't want to upset the apple cart. But, you know, uh, some of them are going to be grinding the teeth, you know, some are going to be chewing on the knuckles, and uh, there might be, you know, a few careers made and lost, you know, once this book gets into the popular uh, imagination. Um, I mean, there used to be this old thing where you weren't allowed to slag anybody off in academia while they were still alive. Uh, and that goes all the way back, way, way back to early Victorian times. You know, that kind of, it's an unwritten law, you know. Well, some of these guys live to like 60, 70, 80 years of age. You know, we're not going to progress if we sat here going, oh, you know, I really don't want to upset, you know, Charles Darwin or whatever by telling him that it's a load of bunkum you know you, you can't do that because you're sinking a person's career you're destroying their means of making a living but i think now in the 21st century i think you know the whole of academia in a way needs to man up and say you know uh, yeah you know yeah we, we've tolerated a lot of twaddle for a long time you know for a couple of hundred years now uh, it's time to kick that old paradigm you know into into touch and just get on with it you know if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck then it's a duck you know uh, and that the book very much takes that uh, as indeed does all my other books they all kind of take that approach you know if there's some substance there you know you don't get any smoke without fire so yeah there, there goes the apple cart Boom. i heard it go over then <laughs> speaking of apple carts let's look back through the history here 
With all the lore we see about out-of-place artifacts, ancient astronauts, any of that tie into the King Arthur legends? Um, yeah, I think, I think the answer is probably yes. I would say that uh, the more we've learned about people in the past, the more that we realize that, you know, they're not primitive not as 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 it's been portrayed back to you know slagging off academia again you know nobody nobody ever used to run around you know looking like a monkey dressed in skins harpooning woolly woolly mammoths you know that's it's made up nonsense because they would just freeze or starve to death you know it's not real uh, it's a kind of, of fantasy and it's equally true of, of of arthur it's equally true of you name it you know the mayans the aztecs the egyptians the aborigines the Romans, the Greeks, you know, go wherever you want in archaeology. I'm go- they're going to love me for this. You've got all these archaeologists out there going, well, you know, we can't, we can't really tell you the truth because, you know, we found this Greek supercomputer in a shipwreck the other day, but we're not allowed to tell anybody about it, you know, mm-hmm. just in case, you know, it, it upsets the paradigm. Uh, well, I'm saying that because it's true. You know, there's so many, ar- I mean, I've had archaeologists come up to me and off the record, you know, I'm not going to, I can't name names and name places, but, you know, off the record, I've been, I've been sent, you know, photographs of Bronze Age axe heads, European Bronze Age axe heads found in America, you know, inscriptions in uh, Australia that shouldn't be there, you know, uh, they fingerprinted copper from this country and discovered that in, you know, 2000 BC, they were exporting copper to Egypt. You know, there's, there's ingots of iron turned up in Germany with pharaonic stamps on. You know, clearly the ancient world was, was not what we imagine it to be. They had the same world, the same planet, the same brains, the same abilities, and a, a huge amount more clarity than we've got, you know, because they're not cluttered by modern twaddle. And they just did the best job they could with what they had. Boy, did they do a good job. You know, we turn up things in archaeology we have no explanation for because they knew how to do it, but we don't, you know. And again, you know, a lot of scientists out there will say, we're not discovering this, we're rediscovering this, you know. So absolutely, I mean... uh, you know, they used to, what was it, in Men in Black, I remember watching a scene in Men in Black where the guy at the end goes up to this newsstand and he buys one of these terrible, you know, daily rags that they produce that, you know, flying saucer found in the North Pole, you know, or, you know, my nan ate my slippers, you know, and all this. And, and the guy says, you know, why, why are you reading this? And he just says, because the truth is in the small print. Now, you know, I know it's a movie, but, you know, take it from that. He's, he's reading it because he knows that hidden, out of sight, way over left field, chances are that's where you're going to find the truth. Now, you know, I'm, you know I've, got, I've got to give it away. I was 60 this year. Now, 60 years of doing this because I've always been into it uh, has taught me, you know, in a lifetime that that's where you go. That's where you go find stuff, you know. You go and have a look where they're telling you not to look and read the books they're telling you not to read, you know, and go and talk to the archaeologists who can't put it on paper, but they are willing to talk to you, you know, go and find this information, find these people. I'm not saying you'll get the right answer. I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, there's a lovely story. I I met Eric Von Daniken at a conference last year. Uh, So you can imagine what this is like. You know, we sat at the table eating our butties in the lunch break and he sat right next to me. And I know he's Eric Von Daniken and he knows that I'm an archaeologist. So you can imagine 
imagine the, to begin with you could have cut the atmosphere with a with a butter knife you know what i mean it was it was odd very odd situation so i thought I've got, i'm gonna have to do something about this i was kind of hoping his english was good because you know he's a, a german german speaking swede so i i, I kind of said to him i said look i said as an archaeologist i said when i was a kid my dad had chariots of the gods and i read it and i said you know i didn't necessarily agree with all of it but as a training archaeology, trainee archaeologist, uh, it made me stop and think. It made me ask questions about, you know, is this the way we think it is? Are we looking at what we think we're looking at? And I said, I've carried that my entire archaeological career. And he put his sandwich down. He just leaned over to me and looked at me. And I can't do his, I can't do his accent. But he just said, do you know? He said, there are 267 question marks in that book. And I just thought, do you know what? He's got it. He's, he's on the same page that I'm on. Question everything. You know, that book's not a statement of intent. It's a statement of question. Question everything. That was the purpose behind Chariot of the Gods. So, I, do you know what? I'll take that quote to me grave. Uh, it's just, it was bang on the money. Absolute bang on the money. And we got on great after that. I can't even remember half the other things we chatted about. But, but that was just, you know, I thought, yeah, Eric, you're a star. You've nailed it. You've nailed it for me. doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. You made us stop and think, you know, and, and that, that's it. By the way, listeners, we had Eric Von Daniken with Hebrew scholar David Halperin on the Paracast, February 4th, 2018. He only was there, Eric Von Daniken, for half the show. But as you say, his English was quite presentable. Yes. Yeah, very good. Very, very good. Um, he, has a, he has a really funny way of doing things, actually, because the way he speaks, when you see him talking, especially in interviews, that's exactly the same way that he does messages. So if anybody's following Ancient Aliens, I'm going to get a plug in here. I was on Ancient Aliens the, the last uh, the last season. Uh, I'm on one on crop circles and one on obelisks and a few other bits and bobs. The way he types messages, the way he types things on the internet is exactly the same as the way he speaks. Hmm. So you look at some of the posts and you think, ah, do you know what? Eric's written that. <laughs> hey, before we laugh ourselves crazy here, which is very close to happening. Mark, Gene, and Tim, you're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Stop aging now. Restore those joints. Boost your strength. Because it's official. Nutramedical has released the most exciting, powerful anti-aging supplement on the market. Dr. Bill Deagle's Red Deer Velvet DR has been approved by the U.S. Patent Office. Imagine stem cell rejuvenation all in one capsule without huge expense. Dr. Bill MD discovered that as an unborn baby grows in the mother's womb, he or she does not deteriorate or physically age. Red Deer Velvet DR, like the uterus, provides 300 biomolecules and six hormones protected in one special DR. DR capsule that delivers lipid packages directly into your circulation. This patented technology bypasses the stomach and is released into the small bowel unaltered by digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Remember, Red Deer Velvet DR. Improve endurance, stimulate your immune system, increase learning ability, and even improve sexual libido with Red Deer Velvet DR. Click NutriMedical.com. That's N-U-T-R-I Medical.com. Or call toll-free 888-212-8871 and get on the road to a newer, rejuvenated, happier you.
USA News Update. Former Vice President Mike Pence says he's troubled by the potential indictment and arrest of his one-time boss, Donald Trump. Pence told reporters an indictment would be concerning, although he is confident the former president can take care of himself. A massive pileup on a snowy Michigan highway left several people injured. Lieutenant Jack Peters with the Iona County Sheriff's Office spoke to 13 on your side. That bridge is, is not a great spot to have accidents. I've policed accidents there before with fatalities, so uh, today we don't have any fatalities, and I'm grateful, extremely grateful for that. The crash involved nearly 100 vehicles. It closed Interstate 96 in both directions for three miles between Grand River and Portland Township. There's a lot more banks that risk facing the same fate as Silicon Valley Bank. Recent study from the Social Science Research Network found that 186 banks across the U.S. could collapse. John Schaefer, USA News. Have you heard the warning from the dead doctors don't lie guy? I'm talking about Dr. Joel Wallach. He says if you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol or high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, or other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. That's what he says. He has a free lecture revealing what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in his free lecture called Deadly Recipe. You want it free? Call him toll free at 855-79-YOUNG. You ready? 855-79-YOUNG. Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy, says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe 25000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is the perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need 25000 50000 or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-721-2477. 800-721-2477. That's 800-721-2477. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. Now, I go back, way back, in looking at ancient astronaut lore. There was a guy named Yona Fortner, who used the name Y. N. Ibn Aharon for Saucer News Magazine, Jim Mosley's Magazine, back in the 1950s. He wrote a series called Extraterrestrialism as an Historical Doctrine. Now, this goes back, like I said, 55 years or so. Probably three people out there in our audience know who Yona was. (laughs) But he was one of the first people to sit and try to figure out what was going on here. And he spoke more languages than you knew about. The problem with Yona, he was also a big storyteller. So when he spoke in Sanskrit, you didn't know. 
I'm I'm slightly later generation than that because I, I was only born in '62, so uh, I kind of uh, most of what was happening in the 1950s, I, I kind of I got it in retrospect because uh, the reason I'm an archaeologist is down to me dad. The reason I've got an interest in UFOs is down to me dad. I mean, he's he's long gone. He, he passed away a couple of years ago, aged 89. So I mean, that's another generation altogether. But he had all this material. Uh, he was a volunteer digger um, on archaeological sites, and that's how I started um, going down with it. I was eight years old when he took me on my first dig. So you know, I've got some great memories of of what we did together back then. Uh, but I kind of picked up on things. You know, uh, in in retro, I mean, you were talking earlier on about biblical stuff and flying saucers in the Bible. Wheels of Ezekiel springs to mind. That was a book, I think, that was produced in the 1960s. Uh, There was another writer back then called Andrew Thomas. Uh, He did books like We Are Not the First and and things like that. Uh, There was a real blossoming in the early 60s of of stuff to do with uh, ancient technology. Eric was around, obviously, you know, uh, looking at parts and... Uh, extraterrestrial stuff uh, the modern day equivalent to that I suppose is ancient aliens you know uh, but the chap you just spoke about I mean he, he was probably United States more than UK um, I don't recall that that name so of the three or four people who are listening who, who do recognise that name I'm not one of them I'm sorry <laughs> well the problem with Yona is he suffered from polio as a child he had difficulty getting around very much So most of the time I did talk to him, he had an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, in the East New York section, just like if you recall the TV show East New York, a TV procedural on CBS. That is the real place you see picture there. Now, I'd visit him every so often. He was a lot of fun to be around, but once again, you didn't know whether he was pulling your leg or not. But he seemed awfully serious about this theory and resented the fact that he got there first and all these other people came later and he felt, number one, they didn't get it quite as accurately as he did. But the problem is he didn't make the proper effort to get the word out. So being in a magazine with 500 circulation doesn't really help. Too bad. No, I mean, really, really, he was a character, though. He was such a character. I I can go with that because as I'm getting older, I I mean, like I said, it took 45 years years to, to actually get this book into publication and i have got another one that's not quite as old as that's 44 years in production um which i'm hoping to do as, as as i've got less and less mobile um and i'm spending more time and obviously since we've had you know the pandemic and lockdowns and all that nonsense uh, i've kind of set myself the task of trying to get most of this into print if i can because uh, i don't want to be guilty of kind of all, all the stuff that's been entrusted to me i don't want to duck out and all that stuff stuff vanish you know uh, i would definitely say this to anybody that's listening if you have information get it written down somewhere get it recorded you know get it into a place where people know about it somehow um because you know the internet isn't going to last forever technology doesn't last forever you know one decent solar flare and all the microchips are gone and the you know the everything will just disappear uh, and that's you know the things like that have happened before historically archaeologically geologically uh, just if you've got something write it down you know for goodness sake get it into hard copy um you know don't rely on on you know, even if you just save to disk or you save to flash drive or you duplicate, you know, um, that's a lesson actually coming all the way back to King Arthur. You know, people did not pay attention at the time. Yes, they had other things, you know, the world's coming to an end and your empire's collapsing and all this that, and the other. Yes, all that, you know, applies. But 
if they'd have done a better job of it and they'd have duplicated it to a greater extent, we wouldn't perhaps have lost it the way that we've lost it. You know, there'd be no need for the polychrome because people would know. So there's, there is a huge lesson there in recording stuff, you know, getting stuff preserved. I mean, archaeologically, academically, you know, I can say this, you know, the more information we can gather, the more we know but it all needs saving. People need to know about it. You know, that it's a shame, really, because archaeology is uh, guilty of not communicating the end result, perhaps as well as it should do. You know, all the time and effort and publications and work that we do and all that, you know, you don't want it finishing up in the bottom drawer, you know, rotting away as a as a report in a library somewhere, you know. Um, you know, hats off to people like Ancient Aliens and other TV shows that are getting things out there, you know. Um, yeah, so if there are any listeners that have any information at all, write it down, get it into hard copy, you know. That is one of the lessons of time. You know, another lesson, too, about that is if you capture something in digital form, and there are exceptions, there's a possibility that 10 years from now that digital format will no longer be supported because the company that made the <laughs> product that creates those documents will have changed their minds. And I'll give people just a very technical answer. There's something called Quark Express, very well-known page makeup or desktop publishing application. It goes back to the 80s. But if you have documents in the early versions of the program, you can't read them anymore. I have issues of a magazine I did in the late 1980s on floppy disk, believe it or not. Very little hope that I have anything now that could read it, which is sad. But if you write something down, as long as you can interpret the written language, you still have the information. Maybe that's a pitch for being old fashioned. Well, yeah, yeah, let me let me leap in. I mean, the Arthur book is a prime example of that. 1977, the first thing I wrote was a handwritten script. Then I went on to handwritten notes, so I finished up with that, loads of stuff in a clip file. Then I acquired a BBC, so the, the first draft of the book with the index was on a BBC computer. Then I got an Amstrad, I think it was a PCW8256 and then a 952 double disk drive one. So it went through two, two versions of the Amstrad, which, of course, as we all know, became obsolete. Then it went from there to Windows 3.0. Which is the first version of what we're on now. And it has gone through seven different Windows version laptops. Mm. So the last version, I think, was either Windows 8 or Windows 10. Then it went to the publisher, who then kind of angle ground it and turned, turned it into a PDF. And it's finished up on Amazon. So it's in a completely different format again for publication. But the actual, actual process, that's 45 years of process to the final book. The only thing that's going to actually matter is the book. So it's ridiculous when you think about it. You know, the, the guys out there who are, you know, if you want to spend your money on something worthwhile, buy a Polychronicon, you know, and make sure it survives. You know, because that's the only thing that, like you say, is going to make it. And uh, I, I think the European language will survive for a, a quite a while yet. I think uh, the English language is, is everywhere. So it's a nice format to use. But totally, totally with you on that one, Gene, totally, 100%. And this book is a prime example of, of exactly that. Well, when we go into the different formats, the ones that still are preserved are PDF, portable yeah. document format, invented by Adobe. That's still preserved. Also, Microsoft Word files are still readable after all these years. So those are two formats. Or just plain text. Plain text can be read by almost anything. This is just a guide point here. Because think about it. What's going to happen 100 years from now? 
all the work you spend 45 years on. And you've got wow. stuff in there that you really think people in the future would want to know about. How do you preserve that documentation in a way that somebody picking it up 100 years later, assuming there's a place and a civilization left 100 years from now, we sure hope there will be, how will they read what you wrote if you don't put them in a format that is readily available. I'm assuming the Microsoft Word format 50 years from now may not be readable anymore. PDF, well, uh, same thing. And maybe something else. Who knows? We'll talk about that on another occasion with Mark and Gene and Tim. You're in. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Extendivite is more than just a heart tonic. Most basic diseases are caused by yeast in the gut and metals in the liver, and we all have a bit of both. The garlic in Extendivite has a yeast-killing effect in the gut while also helping the sulfur enzyme in the liver get rid of the metals. Extendivite just may improve your overall health. Products like Extendivite are the only way we are going to get our society healthy. And if you're waiting for the government and pharmaceutical care to solve your health problems, you're going to have a long, disappointing wait, I think. Extendivite is a complete formula for extended life in the new millennium. 80 can be the new 60. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form for just $69.95 for a two-month supply. To get started, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Advertising is simple. It starts with someone who has a need. Mom! And then gets more specific. Mom, I want pizza. Then we add urgency. I want pizza tonight. Before you know it, your GCN advertising message is reaching millions of listeners. Listeners who are definitely in need. We We want pizza! You see, advertising on GCN is simple. Your message meets their need, and the result means new business for you. Tell us about your business. Then let our super creative department go to work to craft just the right message to feed those who have an urgent need. We want pizza tonight! GCN has the most affordable national radio advertising rates, period. And millions of people listen to GCN radio programs on over 1,000 AM and FM and XM stations and streaming audio live. Get started today with GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. Just shoot us an email, advertise at GCNlive.com. 
I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who help people that have been injured or wronged. If you've been involved in a serious car, truck, or motorcycle accident or injured at work, you have rights and you may be entitled to money for your suffering. Don't accept an offer you get from an insurance company until you talk to a lawyer. And we represent some of the best personal injury lawyers you can find. Tough lawyers that will fight to win your case. And they're so good they stake their reputation on it by only getting paid if you win. So if you've been in a serious car, truck, or motorcycle accident or hurt on the job, find out today for free what kind of compensation you may be entitled to. Call the Legal Helpline right now. 800-509-4492. 800-509-4492. That's 800-509-4492. This is Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So we started, and we've gone a great distance, with the book The Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur, a book by Mark Ali, with a main purpose of finding the real and the myth about the legendary characters such as King Arthur and of course, Merlin, and possibly that there are several of these. And I go to the larger question here. We're looking into ancient astronauts, ancient aliens, and we're dealing with ancient books that were written probably years after the fact. They've been edited, have been covered to be politically correct for their time. How do we know, even in the Bible, that events that we assume to be historical are accurate? I mean, You could look at something that happened yesterday, and there are 26 different versions of it. If you go back 2,000 years, how do you know? Well, I I I think there's a quote. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, history is the myth that we all agree on, Uh, which is a fabulous quote. I mean, that's it. You just nailed it, really, in what you said. History is the myth that we all agree on. I think if people thought something was worth preserving, they probably did. And, you know, I mean, the oldest surviving written records are clay tablets, you know, the cuneiform stuff. Um, And they've lasted from 7,500 BC plus. So they are old, you know, and that kind of shows you the kind of level you have to go to in order for something to be preserved. It's got to be, you know, clay or stone. You're you're looking at the materials of the earth that will survive. At the end of the day, uh, we're on a hiding to nowhere because we we, we need a time machine. You know, the only way we're going to know the truth is to get in a time machine and preferably one that doesn't create a paradox. So you need a time machine that's going to go back, but then at the same time, not interact and not be seen. uh, And then you can see the truth of it. But then even that, if somebody came back and got out the time machine and said, you know, this is this is how it was. It's that person's perception of what you're looking at culturally, linguistically, you know, how good are their observational skills, like you say. Extraordinarily difficult, extraordinarily difficult. I've got to say, well, at the end of the day, I suppose the Polychronicon is, is, is my view of a string of material that was left behind by people of different views it's difficult to say what is definitive Uh, as you say you know some guys leaning on a farmer's gate watch this flying saucer go whizzing through the sky you're going to get different accounts from different viewpoints that's the human animal if you like that's what we are and who we are so it's difficult what is it a chimera 
abominating in a vacuum to eat second intentions, as somebody once said. You know, it's impossible, impossible to really be definitive uh, about something. It's up to us, I suppose, in modern times to push into these things using what we have available to us now. I think I said earlier on, looking at UFO crashes and things like that, the bits of fragments and debris and technology and whatnot that turn up, you know, I am sure that the Second World War technology that was advanced, you know, in 1945, I'm sure that has developed into something which the ordinary man in the street has no concept of whatsoever. It's almost like us and them. You know, there's a line. People who are in the know are in the know and they're just not saying. And then there's everybody else, which is the way the world's gone. Sadly, that's how it is. One day, you know, we might find out. It's that fantastic sequence, actually, of, of reversed engineered stuff. I can't think it's in the second Men in Black movie. Will Smith walks into a room and he touches this ball and this ball goes absolutely bonkers. You know, it destroys the room. It's reversed uh, alien technology, reverse engineered. But take out the fiction and it raises the question, what have we got? What can we do? What is there out there, you know? Well, you know, when it comes to things like reverse engineered technology and about even the so-called UFO crashes... There's always the possibility here that something like a Roswell was really some kind of test aircraft that was 20 years ahead of time, 10 years ahead of time, whatever, back in the late 40s. Therefore, we didn't quite understand it then, or we did and we kept it a secret. But then over the years, all of this stuff gets buried. It's like the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Ark of the Covenant is placed in this warehouse never to be heard from again. So even if Roswell did, and I'm not necessarily convinced one way or the other, even if Roswell did involve the crash of a spaceship, all these decades later, it would have been secreted away, ignored, have dust over it, whatever. We really wouldn't know what to do with it. If they reveal it tomorrow, what are we going to do with it? We have the technology of the iPhone. But if we have a civilization that's a thousand years ahead of us, that wouldn't even be a beginning. No, absolutely not. I mean, and, and, and the, the Germans had Das Glock, which is this strange bell thing. You know, everything's been, it's been attributed as a time machine or a flying craft or you name it. And, you know, very often you see the Adamski style UFOs with swastikas on the side, things like that. You know, it's, it's, you know, what were we up to? Where did we go? You know, how did how did all that end up? You know, and like you say, a thousand years from now, you know, we, we could end up looking like ants, you know, running around as, as primitive as, as insects compared to you know, the folks that have the technology or... Or, as is the way of things, there could be some kind of disaster that reduces us back to no technology at all or very little. You know, meteorite strike, you name it, whatever, uh, solar flare, who knows? You know, it's one of these, which way in Hollywood do you want to go? Do you want to go um, science fiction, super technology, you know, uh, idyllic future? Or, you know, do you want to go kind of down the catastrophic, cataclysm, end of the world, disaster type approach? Either either are equally possible it's just uh, wherever we end up you know in in the next life or the next dimension wherever we end up it's going to be a fascinating fascinating ride into the future there's no doubt about that at all in the in the book i'm working on at the moment about ufos i do actually uh, have a, a section at the end to do with time and looking at you know whether or not 
technologically, you know, things are possible in terms of, of traveling through time as well as space. So maybe that'll come up again as an interesting topic, no doubt in the future. No doubt in the future. And by the way, Mark Olley will also hang with us for this weekend's episode of After the Paracast, which, of course, is the premium show for those who subscribe to the Paracast Plus. I'm thinking about that time machine. It would be so much fun to go back in the past. (laughs) And I'm not going to ask Mark whether his dad, the archaeologist, actually recovered that Stargate that we all know about. That didn't happen, did it? Um... Hey, it'd be great if he did. I'd absolutely love it if he did. I'll tell you what, we've dug up loads of interesting things, but you might want to save that then for the uh, for the after show. I love a Stargate, though, because I don't have to wait 200 years to go from one star system to another. You just walk into the water and you get out, and there you are. Mark Oleg, please tell our listeners, if they want to know more of the things you do and the things you're working on, where do they check you out? I am a man of very, very simple uh, requirements. Uh, If you want to buy any of my books, there are nine of them out there, and they are all on Amazon. So type my name into Amazon, type in the Polychronic of Merlin Joseph Arthur. I think there's one on the Ninth Legion. There's one on Robin Hood, R-O-B-Y-N-H-O-O-D-E. There's one on the Green Man. There's three regional history books. There's Crystal Skulls and Human Heads. There's, um, as I say, Polychronic on, and there's shortly to be one on UFOs. So if you want to buy any of my material, go onto Amazon, click, pay for it, a few days later, it comes whizzing through the door. Brilliant. Love it to bits. Uh, if you want to contact me, if you're after me, it's equally as simple. Messenger or join me on Facebook. I'm going to say that. That's the best way to get in contact with me. If you want interviews, you want to talk to me, you want my email address, anything like that, it all starts with Facebook. Come and find me on Facebook. I'm fairly distinctive, and you'll know when you found me because of, uh, I believe, the books on, on my banner advertised at the moment. So you'll have no trouble finding me. So that's it, really, really simple. Amazon or Facebook Messenger. There you go. We go to Twitter if you look for the Paracast, as long as Elon Musk lets us do it. We're on (laughs) Facebook. We have a fan club and a group. They won't let us post the Paracast.com, however, nor will they let Tim post ConspiracyJournal.com. But that's their fault. You can get branded merchandise at the Paracast.shop or the Paracast.store with the logos and everything. We also offer the Paracast Plus, another domain name extension, the Paracast.plus. We give you this show free of the network ads for a low subscription rate, plus the After the Paracast podcast, which is uncensored, uninterrupted till they throw us out. The Paracast.plus, use the coupon code UFO20. UFO20 to earn a 20% discount on five-year and lifetime subscriptions. The Paracast. Plus. Mark Ali, always a ball to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on The Paracast. Absolutely loved it. Thank you for having me. Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.